Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our second series of Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at Royal Children's Hospital. In our previous podcast on Deciding with Children, we have considered elevating the voice of the child in the consultation and promoting decision-making. We have considered the legal aspects of Deciding with Children in our podcast on Gillick Competence, the Gillick decision very much framed in terms of personal issues such as contraception. However, there are many other situations in which young people could make medical decisions. How do we respond when a young person asks for a gene test, particularly for something as important as Huntington's disease? Once the gene is out of the bottle, there's no going back. Or how do we respond when a young person requests surgery for a congenital abnormality? How do we know that the young person truly has capacity to make these decisions? And is capacity to consent for treatment the same as capacity to refuse treatment? To answer these difficult questions, I'm joined by Dr Andrew Court, child psychiatrist at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, John. And to help consider the ethical basis of consent and refusal by young people, I'm joined by Associate Professor Ros McDougall from the Children's Bioethics Centre at Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Ros. Thanks, John. Andrew, I might start with you before we get to some of the specific cases. How do we consider that a young person might have capacity to make a decision? Well, John... My involvement with young people in in this question usually arises when medical teams ask me to see young people, adolescents, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, including things like um, their own decisions that they want to stop treatment for some sort or that they are wanting something which is, is, is not completely going along with what the medical physicians are deciding or parents are disagreeing with them about. And so it's a particular role that I have in assessing young people's competency to be making these decisions. And I'm going in recognising it's not just providing information about something or assessing someone's everyday competency. So I know I'm going in recognising that I've got something to assess in particular, some dilemma. And um, what we are, clearly what we are, what anyone I think is trying to assess is the young person's ability to make a decision um, in terms of assessing their understanding of what is wrong with them and, and what the treatments involved are and what the consequences of treatments and not having treatment and so on. There's a variety of things which we'd want them, which we'd want to believe they understood. Um, and my way of going about assessing that is is to basically present myself as someone who doesn't know and is wanting this young person to explain it to me. So in other words, I want them to tell me about their medical condition, whatever it is. I pretend I do not know and I want them to explain it to me. You know, what, what, what is, how does it affect them, this condition they have? What treatments have they been offered? What have they been told are the side effects of these treatments? What are the consequences of not having this treatment? Why are they? Why is this young person making this decision that they don't want or do want the particular treatment? Um, and what I'm trying to really tease out is is is, is from that, as a, and, and putting myself in a position who who wants to understand it, 
if they're able to explain it to me. If they're able to, in other words, not coming from a position of being a doctor, um, but coming from a position as a layperson of wanting this person to explain in a way that I can understand and in language I can understand what is going on with them and if they can really help me understand it. And if they can help me understand it, then it feels to me they have the capacity at least to understand what's going on for them. The, the next question then is, you know, why are they coming specifically to... Because remembering, I usually have been asked to see them for specific issues and problems and, and then I would hone in on to the onto the reasons that, that, that are being asked to see them, for example, refusing something or wanting something that goes against what other people are thinking. And again, I would really be honing down in trying to get them to explain it to me in a way um, which I can understand. And generally speaking, what I'm trying to make sense of it is, is whether it makes sense to me. There's a consistency in what they're saying that, that allows me to think that um, I, they have persuaded me <laughs> that it would make sense for who they are and how they've described it to me. So in a way, Andrew, you're not necessarily persuading you, but they're sort of persuading themselves that the decision is is fitting with their, you know, clearly with their values and and perhaps, Andrew, some long-term idea of, of themselves and, and what that might mean because I guess a risk for children is, I think, very much now and not necessarily so much in the future and it strikes me what you're doing is going beyond just getting the parrot back some medical information that they've received and and try and fit this decision with who they are now and I'm guessing you're hoping as it's talking about who they might become in the future? Yes and no. Certainly I'm, I'm looking to not just having information parroted back but... What I'm also, I'm taking the position of being an adult myself. So I am actually wanting to be persuaded as an adult, if you like, someone with capacity, that their reasoning makes sense consistently. Because, and by that I mean, yes, it is important to understand who they are in making, as a person and ask them to think about that. And part of my assessment is to get that. But I'm still trying to assess that they are being driven by those motivations, by one, understanding, but also it fitting into their own more mature ways of seeing the world because recognising that young people can be driven by motivations that are very, maybe developmentally appropriate, but not necessarily appropriate for the condition. In other words, things which might be related to their own adolescent desires, which which they may not be aware of, is going to affect the, how they are as adults. And that is something I want to check in with when I'm assessing them, is that they understand that. It makes it very, very complex what you're trying to get into, Andrew. And obviously there are lots of young people making all sorts of probably fairly simple decisions and you're called in when these decisions are really very complex. And I think we perhaps do have an obligation that we can support the child but we don't get things wrong or let things go wrong. But I have a feeling when I'm saying that that I feel like I'm straying into ethical territory and, Ros, I think that... There's a lot to unpack ethically in what Andrew's been trying to do. Do you have some comments about that? Yes, I was really struck, Andrew, when you were saying it's about consistency and it's about who they are. Um, They seem to be two really important ethical elements of thinking through adolescence' capacity to decide that 
consistency in their reasoning, that it makes sense, but also that it links to their values um, or their own experience as an individual now. So I think they're two really important ethical elements. I think that when we're talking about adolescence, they're in that very ethically interesting but also complex space where they're moving from lacking the skills and development that they need to make autonomous decisions, but moving through that sort of period of developing autonomy into what we'd think of as a more adult kind of mode where we assume that people have capacity. So adolescents in particular in that sort of developing autonomy have that complexity around reasoning and values and so on that makes this area more challenging. So I get the sense, Andrew, is very much respecting the person by going in ears first, all ears, all ears blazing. We might coin that term on essential ethics today to really get that sense of who they are. Another theme though that we've had in Deciding with Children is about coaching. So, and Roz was then making a suggestion that, you know, overall there's this progression through towards more autonomous adult-like decision-making. Do you think through what you're doing, and I imagine, Andrew, it's not always a single session to decide capacity that you might also be doing a little bit of coaching there and helping them move through those stages. Do you see it happening like that? Coaching as in helping someone make an adult decision rather than, I mean, a young adult decision rather than a childish adolescent decision. That's an interesting question. Um, I think one needs to assess how much of it is an childish adolescent decision-making, if you like. And and by that I mean, and I, well, actually, can I better clarify what I think we mean? I think sometimes adolescents are simply wanting to voice their wish for autonomy or their annoyance at the situation rather than actively having thought through their reasons for whatever they're stating they want to do. And part of my job is to tease out what might be adolescent appropriate but potentially inappropriate with regards to this particular decision from a um, a well-thought-out adult decision. And and I guess um, as I would see it, I'm trying to tease that out and I would be trying to tease that out with them individually without potentially putting it quite like that. But perhaps, for example, it might be acknowledging that they have felt that they've had no control over anything in in, in their medical treatment to date. Um, and that that must be very annoying for them. And this must, it sounds like this is an occasion where they are wanting to have some autonomy and input into it. Or that they might be very angry about having to do all these horrible things with, with horrible side effects and so on. And I could understand if they, there must be times when they just want to give the whole thing up and stop. The thing I'm trying to assess then is how, how much they're able to come with me in that qu- questioning whether in fact their decision making comes from a younger. <laughs> Um, adolescent, child adolescent point of view rather than someone who's actually has thought it through in, in terms of their decision making from a more mature perspective without those adolescent issues getting in the way. And that decision, Andrew, would be a combination of some decision for now, but the more mature decision is about the bigger picture and the future. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Well, I mean, I guess that kind of idea of someone who's not wanting to have 
a particular treatment as part of a chronic illness, for example, you know, a port or, or something, um, th- thinking it through about, you know, why they don't in, in not now, but also, you know, what, how do they see the future um, and, and, and how does this, whatever this decision fit into that and, and does it fit into that or is it really just a matter of a rebellion now in this, in this moment and trying to really assess how much is a rebellion now in a moment versus a bigger picture worry about whatever they're having to deal with. Ros, I think that's one of the things, isn't it, about ethics of kids. It's just so fascinating. It's about respecting them as kids now. And I think Andrew's describing all sorts of very appropriate things in terms of not wanting things and wanting to be in control, but at the same time as, as a being, also a becoming, and, and what's going to happen later and who are we responsible to. Yes, and I think that goes to a difference in the ethical obligations of paediatric clinicians compared to clinicians in the adult world. So the idea that, I mean, adults make bad decisions or adults can make decisions that we think are not in their best interests, but there is this assumption that they're ethically entitled to make those decisions as long as they're fully informed and so on. Um, So the respect for autonomy really is the driving ethical obligation there in adult land. But in paediatrics, it's getting that balance between respect for the adolescent's developing autonomy, but also that obligation of beneficence. So when there's a difference between the when uh, adolescents choosing something that clinicians don't think is in their best interest, then there's that strong obligation um, to really unpack and understand there. So the balancing of those ethical obligations, I think, is different in paediatrics compared to um, for adults. I mean, it can be a bit sort of unitary just to see, you know, best interest solely in terms of the the outcome but actually best interest is in respecting the autonomy and the, the emerging person. And I think that we're, these situations we're getting Andrew in, so ideally we can achieve uh, both. Mm. But I wonder, Andrew, if we should perhaps road test this against a difficult clinical scenario, um, which I know you've been involved with, of young people requesting a gene test, which you know, it might be simple enough to see if they're a carrier for an autosomal recessive disease like cystic fibrosis where being a carrier is not immediately harmful to their health and not going to have cystic fibrosis versus something more substantial like an autosomal dominant condition that's going to appear later on like Huntington's disease. I've been involved in assessing competency for young people for testing for Huntington's disease for not quite sure how long, but at least 15 years now. And when I first was involved, um, no one below the age of 18 was was able to get testing for Huntington's. And I was involved in a test case of seeing someone who wanted testing done and went through a process and eventually got testing done when she was 16. And since then, I've seen a number of young people to assess their competency, all of whom are requesting Huntington's testing prior to the age of 18. And I have to say my own views on assessing the competency but also clarifying whether or not a person is competent to make this decision has changed a little bit over the years that I've been involved with a recognition that there are a number of 
um, issues which need to be teased out as and can be hidden as to why a young person is requesting testing. So for people who may be not familiar, Huntington's disease is a progressive degenerative condition that often starts in the late 20s or 30s. Often people have had their children by the time it's been diagnosed and then it's a fairly rapid and inevitable deterioration to dementia and, and premature death and that it's an autosomal dominant condition whereby people will inherit the gene, 50% chance of a child inheriting the gene. So you might grow up knowing this has happened to your parent and you might think, well, if I don't have the gene, I'm off the hook and that's good. I can grow up not worried. And if I have got the gene, well, then I know what's ahead of me, which might be a disastrous thing to know or could be a good thing framed up in certain ways. So that's the situation. And, and, and obviously people quite young have seen their parent, 12, 13, seen their parents deteriorate and want to know. Correct, John. And can I add then that most of the people that I have seen, have their parents have died from Huntington's. And most of them, by the way, usually have the, the, the support of their whoever is left behind. But they're very clear that they, having heard about their parent has died, that they want to know themselves. Um, and, and of interest too, I think it's, it's important that, uh, as I understand it, that a lot of adults don't want testing done because for the very reason you're saying that you then find out that this is something that's going to affect you a long time down the track or not. So it's important to be aware that many adults do not want to get testing when they get to 18. Uh, most, in fact. And, and, and uh, getting back to the point that Ros was making before about the difference between adolescents and adults, I guess the more I kind of have, uh, assess young people, the more I realise that it, it, part of the deal is, is trying to decide whether or not this person would make the same decision when they're 18 or not. And that's been the argument against getting decisions before 18 is that you lose your autonomy as an adult to, uh, to, to make a decision. If you've had the test before you're 18, you, you won't know. And yet, I mean... Who's to say that an adult is at 18 and can make a competent decision when they turn 18 or not? But certainly that's one of the things I'm trying to assess with the young person is whether or not they would make the same decision after they're 18. I don't know myself whether if I had the availability, whether I'd get testing if I knew that I had a risk. But I'm trying to get that, you know, that person to explain to me why they want to in a way that makes me feel that it is, as, as we're saying, consistent with who they are. And sometimes it may not be. But again, the question is whether or not I should be stopping them uh, in, in doing that, even if I have concerns about it, recognising that if it is a well thought out autonomous decision, in my opinion, should I be able to stop them? And, and I have to say that increasingly over the years, it's become up to me, tick the box, whether the person gets a test, where before I was part of a team. And it's become much more complicated for me just to tick the box because I realise I'm kind of playing God a bit, which means that I really am making a decision about this person's mental health. And it's really asked me to focus on the appropriateness or otherwise. And getting back to, the, I think your point you were making was, is that, you know, really trying to to make a sense of supporting making a, the decision if it is right for them and recognising that in, in stopping it uh, because I feel they're not competent or able to make it, how do I do that in a way which is not seen as withholding and makes them just angry and well, forget the whole process? Yeah, I think that's really interesting way of teasing out the ethical decisions because obviously there's an ethical decision there about whether or not they're competent and that's got ethical content, but then also you're highlighting the 
way in which you implement that first decision is, again, another ethical decision with ethical content. So although it might not be the kind of big big red flag ethics decision, mm. that bit, that second bit is ethical too. I think, Andrew, too, it, it seems though in this adolescence that there's a lot of, there's rapid change. So none of us are the same as we were 10 years ago and 10 years before that and perhaps 10 years before that. But between 14, 16 and 18, there's a lot of changes going on, a lot of backwards and forward. And I think one of the words we've used is consistency and you used it in terms of consistency with your own values. I'm not sure, but I think Roz actually meant consistency or stability of decision. Is it the same decision mm. now as in six, 12 months, mm. four years? And that's what you're impossibly mm. trying to gauge. But I also sense this is a developmental issue in terms of the way the brain develops and the young person coming at this a bit like a tigger, I will be negative and I'll be fine. And not really able to see, well, if it's positive, what will that mean for 15 years down the track, which will be hard enough at 18 or 19 or 25, but at that time that you're being asked to make. Mm. What's the what's the vibe, Andrew? What's happening? Most people with some discussion deciding not to have the test or do uh, you have to be the person uh, who has to make that decision? Everyone is coming wanting the test. When they when they come to see me, they are, they are in fact, it's quite a bit of pressure really because they are coming thinking they've got to pass the test with me to get the test. So, you know, they're on their best behaviour, which is part of the whole deal that I have to break that down and, and really try and get a, a real conversation happening rather than tick box answers. There are occasions when I have said, for whatever reason, that I have concerned that that there's some form of difficulty getting in the way of, of this person making the potentially the right decision for them is delaying. Mm. And, and, and saying that I feel that I need to meet them a few times. They need to be meeting someone for a period of time before they can make that decision. Which, um, And usually in that, in that context, young people are okay with that. Though part of the whole challenge is, is, is again, getting it right between delays which really annoy them versus needing to engage in a, in a process to understand that. Generally speaking, I've been involved quite a few times with young people who haven't gone through that process want to keep on seeing me. And I have I've continued to see people with Huntington's until they die, as in people who went through that process now, who I assessed and kept on seeing regularly. And they generally all have said, whether or not this is true or not, that they were glad they got that done, even though it was positive, that they were, they were glad they had the opportunity to, to get testing done. And it sounds like ongoing support too, in, in perhaps in either way of the decision-making is really important. Uh, well, I think so, but um, the, the, the problem is that there are quite a few I've seen who said, I don't need anyone, thank you. I've got a fine network. I've got, I've got my partner. I've got my parents, whatever, and I, you know, I'd rather not come and see you and the, and, or, or anyone. Um, and, and then, that, that's, you know, again, that adds to the degree of difficulty in decision-making for me a bit. Andrew, it's, it's fascinating the way we're just really trying to meld this understanding the person, respect for their emerging autonomy, thinking them thinking about us, thinking about them thinking about the future yeah. self and starting to think about, you know, the how to honour their decision either way. Could we change tack a little bit and think about another situation um, which is really a situation where the young person isn't as well supported? You mentioned that some of the 
young people with Huntington's might be well supported by their networks. So someone who's perhaps not as well supported, not necessarily in a day-to-day way, but supported in the particular decision-making. So I'm thinking of a young person, uh, a young boy, 14, 15, osteosarcoma, tumour of the limb, and the limb can't be saved. And to save his life, that needs to have an amputation doesn't have to happen tomorrow, but it does need to happen soonish before there's spread to the rest of the body. But the young person then would have to live without the limb and it's a difficult decision and no one would want to make that decision, including the parents in this situation, because they're worried about how the young person might feel later on that parents made him have his leg cut off rather than he decided to. So they've basically throwing the decision over to him. And that's a very big ask for a young person. And there may be some ambivalence between imagining life without a leg but a life and life just too hard and I'd rather just battle on and do what I'm doing with my two legs and take whatever other therapy. And If I die, I die, but at least I die with two legs. So how do you approach that sort of situation where the young person really has quite a lot left on their plate for decision-making? Thanks, John. Well, I've been involved in a couple of cases like this and I guess, um, well, I'd put that there's two issues here. One is the young person decision-making. The other one is what's going on with the parents that makes it hard for them to make a decision. Um, And and again, um, so in such a circumstance, I would see my role as not just assessing the young person but also assessing and seeing the parents um, it, because, I mean, it, it, it is – it's very hard to be a parent. It's very hard to be a parent of someone with a medical illness and it's very hard I – can, I can understand. It's very hard for parents to make hard decisions about their kid with, with medical. And so there's you – know, the, the, what we're talking about potentially though is where parents, for whatever reason, find it hard to make – um, or to, to make a hard decision um, for their kid, even though the medical opinion is that that is the right decision to make that, and that, that it, there is needed to have um, consent from parents and ideally from young person as well in order to follow through with that medical decision where parents are unable to make it or might be unable to make it um, and, and the young person is unable to make it as well. So I'm assessing both really, is first of all, as a starting point, and to try and understand, um, and again, in these circumstances, for, I certainly, um, as someone who's assessing this, need to know exactly what the facts are too, um, and by that, medical facts. And so that's, I also go about the same issue about trying to get the young person to explain what the deal is and the parents also and separately as to explain to me what, what is required and why, for example, an amputation is required and when it would be required and why not and when not and so on. And then try and tease out if it's clear that the, the doctors are making a decision that this needs to happen but for whatever reason the others, are, the parents or the young person is struggling to give consent is to understand what the reasons might be. Again, in, in, in circumstances that I've been in this situation where there's, for example, a young person is being asked by parents to give consent for something as, as major as an amputation, for example, 
I have spent quite a bit of time with individuals trying to understand you know, where they're coming from and what is preventing them in making that decision and trying to understand what those might, what those factors might be. And have to say, generally speaking, the, the young people I've seen have been pretty good at being able to express their ambivalence and also able to express how hard it is for making such a big decision. And in some circumstances, I have to say, even being able to voice that they wish someone else could make it for them, the same time as recognising that they would be very angry <laughs> if, if someone did. Um, so, you know, there's this, 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 that kind of dynamic, I have to say, I, I can feel both for the young person and parents, um, if you like, because, you know, the, it's sort of putting parents in a position where, which I, I have to say I can relate to, of making a decision knowing that it would be potentially... Um, their, their kid would be very upset with them for making a decision. And yet, you know, ha- how to help support a parent to make that decision is part of the deal, if possible, because I think it's a huge one for the task of a young person, versus actually working out how to get the young person to come to making a decision in a way that they feel comfortable with. Andrew, there's so much, and that's why I like this example. And Ros, what I think Andrew's highlighted too for me there is a sort of the willingness of the young person to be engaged in decisions. So willingness, do you think that's an important component of deciding with children decision-making? Absolutely. So if deciding the kind of ethical basis of deciding with children is respecting that adolescent, then respect for the way in which they would like to be involved in the decision-making is very ethically important. It's not just about generating a decision. It's about the process by which you get to that decision. So I think um, the adolescent's willingness to be involved is a really important aspect. Uh, And then there's this concept of responsibility. So what does actually consent for a procedure mean? I can agree it's good for me. Who's going to wear the consequences of it? tricky because I was going to say children and adolescents come in families, but actually all of us come in families, um, that it's not just about uh, the, the young person. It's about the fact that any individual is linked into a family um, and that cares for them and takes um, an interest in them and some responsibility for their well-being. So, when we're thinking about young people and their capacity to decide, that's always going to be enmeshed in a particular family context and it's going to be specific to that family. So I think that um, there's responsibility there, but an uh, idea that the decision um, comes with a responsibility that's sort of shared within some context in some particular way that's going to be specific to this family. And I think maybe there's a a difference between consent in the sense of signing the form, the kind of action of consent, compared to the maybe ethical experience of consent or um, I'm not sure what the what the comparator is there, but the idea that in consenting to something, 
you're understanding what you're taking on, you're understanding the different possibilities, you're understanding the choice that you've made. And there is some degree of responsibility that comes with that. Um, I'm still not sure if responsibility is quite the right word, but there's a kind of weightiness to it. Can I just check in with you there, Ross, because I'm I'm thinking of a couple of cases where this is the issue and thinking at the end of the day, there was a sense of who was going to take the responsibility for signing the form, even though there's a process of getting to a position of actually accepting one's responsibility for decision-making. At the end of the day, someone signing a form is actually taking responsibility. And if no one wants to take that responsibility, the form doesn't get signed and doesn't get done. Yep. And so therefore, you know, at the end of the day, the responsibility is important, I think. You know? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right, that we can't the form is the kind of artefact that yes. we need that um, cements that decision. But I think the form in itself is not, from an ethical perspective, the really important bit. It's that process that you've been describing of helping people understand that is the really ethically weighty bit. And obviously, from a legal perspective, the form's important. But for me, the form is the kind of icing on the cake and the cake is the process. But it's it's a very symbolic, if nothing else, it's this is it. We have decided. So it's easy to misconstrue deciding with children as tossing the parents out. But it's usually we because the form for young people does include the young person signing and the parent. Clearly different parents have, have a different way of coming at this because <laughs> some parents... The other extreme is um, you're too young to make this decision. We're making it for you, <laughs> and we're going to sign, and we're going to say, and then it's up to the young person to sort of, if you like, um, respond, <laughs> whether however it might be. And some young people actually, you know, trust their parents and the, and everyone else, and accept that. It'd be nice to know that they had been informed and gone through a decision making process. But for some parents, want to be the ones taking responsibility as parents versus some parents really struggle with that, I think, um, as the young person becomes older um, and and really wants to push for a young person to have as much autonomy as possible and as much independence as possible, perhaps before before they're ready. Um, you know, and, and again, that gets back to every family is different and every, every parent has their own different experiences. But certainly, yes, I do think sometimes it's possible to at least it to seem that it can be, you know, when parents are, are perhaps not wanting to take that role on because of their own issues, which may include not wanting to upset their adolescent, then it does come across or it can come across sometimes as, as parents really struggling to accept that responsibility of being a parent. And that gets back to this idea it's hard being a parent. It's It can be hard to make hard decisions. But at the beginning of that, Andrew, I think, you made some, a really interesting point for me was of the parent sort of involving the kid and pushing them along a little, mm. trying to lead them towards a position of increased maturity and capacity to make some decisions. It may not be this uh, amputation decision. Mm. And I think that's a good thing and that's the parent coaching the child. And I guess as if we increase the age of this child to 17 and a half, 18, and they don't want to make a decision... Mm. Um, and don't want to be involved in the decision making, 
then I, I personally see that sort of problematic for the development of the child and future medical decision making. Sure, it's a, it's yeah, as you're as you're quite right. I mean, as I perceive you're pointing out, is it's a different issue. It's you know the, yep. the, then it's someone who needs to be helped with their individuation and yep. and, and separation as a separate issue. Ros, I think that um it's a really important point that you made, Andrew, about it's really hard to be a parent in this context. And we're asking parents where a child's had a chronic disease over a long period of time to change and evolve their role within that child's care. And that's a big ask too, that the absolutely um, ethically appropriate way to be involved in your child's medical decision-making at a certain age changes as they get older and asking parents to change, you know, that's a big ask too. So just in terms of you talked about coaching, John, coaching the child um, to kind of come forward and take a bigger piece of the decision making, then it's supporting coaching for parents too in that stepping back process is really um, ethically important as their role changes across time. Can I just add to that too, Ros, because I I think in some levels it it, it points to the very act of parenting. And by that, I mean that I think an adolescent, for example, does continues to need firm boundaries about you know, what, what, is, what, what, what is acceptable. Even if you, as an adolescent, you are, I would also encourage adolescents to break boundaries and change boundaries to a certain extent, but know that what they're breaking in terms of what the rules are from their parents. And it, it's, it's hard work to be a parent of an adolescent because it involves pushing back against your kid in a way which they may not like, um, which they need, if you like. And again, I guess this this is the point. At some level, my sense is that it's possible for a young person in this position to actually want their parents to make a decision, but not to be able to voice it. Because as an adolescent, you know, you're supposed to be <laughs> you're supposed to be autonomous and whatever. So it actually, it's 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 actually asking quite a bit of the young person, and it depends very much on the parenting style whether they're up for being the hardline parent that they might need to be in this situation. Mm. Well, while we're talking parenting, mm. let's up the ante because mm. that's what <laughs> adolescents will be doing for their parent. So, you know, what we've talked about is is kids asking for something. There's a gene testing. We've talked about kids being asked to decide for something. What about refusal? So, Andrew, I'm going to give you some examples and I want you just to mull over these. Um, it might be refusing chemotherapy, might be refusing a feeding gastrostomy tube, might be refusing clotting factor replacement, um, might be refusing a nasogastric tube for somebody who's an eating disorder. So while you're pondering those difficult circumstances, and I'll ask Roz, do you think that the capacity to decide is the same as the capacity to refuse? Short answer is For children, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I think that the – I think that they're different for children or, well, for children and young people because usually the capacity to decide when we're seeing if – a young person has capacity to consent to a procedure, for example. There's 
a more simple case where there's not actually any disagreement about what's in the child's best interests. So the idea that a young person can consent to their own medical treatment is straightforward when there's essentially agreement about the best pathway forward. But when you're in a situation of refusal, then that difference in understanding about best interests is starting to come into play. So we end up in that situation uh, for clinicians potentially of that conflict between respect for their developing autonomy and the obligation to act um, in their best interests. So I think refusals are more ethically complicated because of that disagreement about best interests. Do you think we're holding kids to a higher account? This might go, in fact, to both types of decisions. So to an adult, we assume capacity, you know, go ahead and decide, and we'd like it to be informed and free will, etc. Mm-hmm. But do you think we we hold kids to a higher standard for their consent, but we also uh, an even higher standard than that for their refusal? We're definitely holding them to a high standard, whether it's relatively higher or inappropriately high. They're hard questions, but I think it's appropriate that it's a high standard for refusal because there's a lot at stake for young people. So in the kinds of uh, situations that you described, the thing that they can be giving up by their refusal is something very significant. And often just by nature of them being young and with another 80 years to live, I guess. Exactly. That that they're giving up more than an older person. But I'd also say just before we come back to Andrew that when an older person makes a bad decision, a really bad decision, I think that it's not as though clinicians take that all that lightly or just accept it and in fact will question capacity to make a decision and try and and find ways around that, which could be a discussion for another day. But I want to come back to Andrew because I think, Andrew, you started to unpack refusal when we were talking about the the kid who hasn't been perhaps involved in the decision making. So here we are. I don't know if any of those examples they all, we all speak uh, speak they to all speak to I, well perhaps <laughs> we, maybe we could just briefly separate what about sort of refusal of factor treatment. So I'll come back to the anorexia because there's a mental health element there in terms of capacity to make decisions. But if someone's well, they've had enough of taking their factor eight. Well, can I can I go back a step though? Because I think one of the things as again you as, as you were giving all of those examples it still is going to be at the end of the day whether you force something on someone or whether you bring them with you, recognising that in, in all of these examples, at the end of the day, are we going to hold them down and do something to them when they've said, I don't want you to do it or not? And the bottom line from that point of view, I think, is that in the examples you've given, we do do that with anorexia because, I, by the way, I'm jumping to that as, a, as an example, because the assessment is that their mental illness has not given them capacity to make to make the right decision based on that So th- and, and they are at risk physically because of their impaired judgment and we need to do that and there's a whole range of other reasons. But also, Andrew, I think in that case, because it's a fairly simple, non-operative, changeable thing. I mean, I think kids can just pull the thing out if they want to. They tend not to. So it's a one-off event. This is true. Um, As to a certain extent, the other examples you're you're giving are 
But the question whether you hold someone down for factor eight or you hold someone down to have a, a feeding tube put in or, or, or they, well, you, they do it against factor you. Factor eight might be different because it's going to need to be repeated regularly through mm-hmm. the week to keep the levels up. Um, the portacath might be a – it needs to be in theatre um, and it's in – and they not want to then use it, or if it's a peg feeding tube, they mm. then not want to yeah. use it. So yeah. there's sort of different nuance then, isn't there? But there's a, a sort of something going on when when kids, young people aren't agreeing to what lots of grown-ups and their clinicians might think would be good for them. Yes. I would be wanting to have a conversation with any of those young people about what their reasons are for not wanting to go ahead with treatment for whatever whatever that treatment is. And I guess in each of those it is potentially possible, I would say, to to create an argument as to why it makes sense to me consistently why they might want to go ahead. But at the same time, that then leads into decision-making where that's not enough because of the reasons Ros was mentioning in that we can't just allow someone to deteriorate, even if, for example, they've just had enough and they explain why they've had enough in a way which makes sense to me as who they are. At the same time, there are specific things I am trying to assess here. There can be so many different reasons why someone is saying no, uh, including... um, an expectation that you are going to be forced, by the by. It's just that I want you to know that I don't want it. Um, or it could be that you are wanting and expecting um, the, the part of the whole deal can be, I'm afraid to say, this battle of push-me-pull-you to engage in the treating team in an ongoing way, which con- continues. And how to engage the young person, if it's possible, to engage in a conversation about what might be going on to be making this decision against their treatment and to try and engage them in that kind of understanding rather than just at the end of the day telling them they have to do it um, is part of what I see my role as doing to a certain extent. At the end of the day, though, what what, do you, what to do when someone just refuses? Yes, and, I, and I'm seeing, Andrew, you know, to give some circumstances that I know about that you know, you've highlighted that someone just has never really asked you properly or tried to bring you along on the journey. And so you've refused trying to establish your own position, establish your own autonomy, your own identity. Um, you might be trying to piss your parents off or parents disagree and then you're torn yeah. torn between uh, two, I guess because you're going in with all ears blazing. And I think that's sort of the lesson here is, uh, which hopefully has come in a bit sooner, but perhaps it hasn't. That's why we're in essential ethics and called Andrew Court in, uh, it's just a misunderstanding of what the procedure is and how it might work. Um, it could be peer pressure um, or something more that you really do have, you know, self-destruction and self-harm Yeah, yeah. And, on the cards. Yes, and, and my perception is that I only get asked in it at the end point often and not and I, by the way I don't I'm not saying that's bad because I think most of these times physicians are very able to resolve many of those issues by talking it through and most physicians I think and most pediatricians are very good at that and do a very good job of doing it so usually they get resolved along the way before they get to me and and I guess it's um yes it's 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 really trying to see if it's possible to tease out the bottom of the you know at the end of the day what the particular reasons for this person are and whether it's possible to continue on that journey in a 
way which includes them being part of it or whether in the end of the day it involves them just having something done to them that they, that they don't want to have done and they're not old enough yet to do that. <laughs> Ros, what, you know, what are the, the boundaries around what we just sort of have to do or what we might be allowed? Yeah, it's been interesting listening to the different types of examples that have come up today. So the difference between consent, you know, the adolescent or young person providing consent to a treatment that everyone pretty much agrees is a good idea, adolescent uh, requesting something like the Huntington's disease uh, test where hmm, we're not sure if this is a good idea um, and then requests or, or refusals where the adolescent, where there's a kind of consensus amongst the clinicians that this is definitely a good idea. Um, so th- each of those situations I think are ethically distinct um, and thinking through, okay, what's the role for the adolescent? What's the role for the parent? What's the role for the clinician in each of these types of situations? And then individuating that to the specific individual as well. So they're their values, their developmental stage, their where they're at in all um, those different aspects of their lives. So I think it's about the role, uh, well, it's about the type of um, issue where capacity is being questioned. It's about the role of the different stakeholders and it's about the individual young person and family as well. Well, Ros and, and Andrew, I think we've covered an enormous amount of of territory, trying to think about capacity to decide and, and what it means and how the young person might think about that and how the decision that's been asked of them aligns with what they know and what they know about themselves and how they might be thinking now and how they might be thinking about the future and us thinking about us as the clinicians about is that a you know a good decision and are the reasons for that good enough and is it aligning best interests and respect for persons, which I think is a delicate dance uh, at times. And then thinking, well, this concept of refusal, do we have to accept refusal and how do we get in there and try and understand it because the consequences of accepting refusal and honouring that refusal can be very, very serious. I don't feel like this is the last conversation we're ever going to have about this topic, but there's a lot to think about here. So, Andrew, thank you very much for coming. Pleasure. And, Ross, thank you very much for your insights about the ethics that underpin capacity to decide and capacity to refuse. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced in the studio of the Royal Children's Hospital, Creative Studios. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Be inspired.